There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Displaying the kind of adaptability that England were sorely lacking during the Six Nations, I've stepped into the hosting seat at half an hour's notice to bring you the ruck. The RFU need not spend thousands of pounds recruiting yet another sports psychologist. They just need to contact today's crack team of ruckers. I'm Alex Lowe, and with me are Mark Evans, the former Harlequins coach, chief executive, who's been an instrumental in the growth of British netball and in Newcastle hosting this season's European finals. Mark knows just as much about the business of rugby off the field as he does on it. He's writing a book with Michael Elwin, a good friend of the pod, called Unholy Union, in which he studied rugby in the professional era and has managed to reach some kind of a conclusion, which is more than world rugby and the Six Nations seem to be able to get to. But more on that later, no doubt. We're also joined by Adam Hathaway, the dogman, the prince of Fleet Street freelancers. Huthers, how's the Greyhound world? Not going very well, thanks to you lot, because two, <laughs> two weeks ago I came on here and gave a plea to CVC to invest in the syndicate, and uh, we still haven't had a reply. No word. No, no word. No. Staggering. Mark, how was your weekend of rugby? Oh, terrific. What a, one of the best. Um, I mean, I didn't see every game. I mean, mm. no one's got that much time, but I saw quite a few, and uh, yeah, absolutely terrific, wonderful weekend for French club rugby. Which games did you watch? Oh, I watched uh, Leinster Munster. Uh, not Leinster Munster. Leinster Ulster. Um, I thought that was just one of the great occasions. It felt like an international. It looked like an international. Um, and thoroughly enjoyed that. Could have gone either way. I thought Ulster were terrific. Poor old Stockdale. <laughs> you know, it happens. And I watched Rock and Roll Rugby from La Défense which oh, yeah. was the first half I mean it was all good but the first half I thought was the best half of rugby I'd seen for about 20 years I, just wonderful well, well that, that ground I went there in um, before Christmas for the Leicester pool match mm. and before the game started I half expected Jean-Michel Jarre to come out from sort of stage <laughs> left is absolutely Brilliant place. Yeah. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just a great place to play rugby and the game lived up to the to the setting. Fourteen yeah, for sure. man to lose, um just sensational offloading mm. and uh, loved it. Just they're back. Yeah, and, and that's one of the most exciting things about that fixture. I think that the the build up to it was it could easily be the best of the the best of the bunch and it mm. and it was, but to to be the best it had to it had to reach some kind of high, and and those two clubs, I think they lead the the competition in offloading and and that attacking mentality they have, both of them, and and for Toulouse to 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 kind of pick themselves up after losing their fly half and and go on and win it was sensational, wasn't it, Adam? Uh, the, the thing is about the um, the Champions Cup uh, quarterfinals, there were three massive occasions. Um, 
the uh, Munster Munster Edinburgh game, the uh, Ulster Leinster game, the game in France. But the one statement game was the Saracens game. They absolutely mullered Glasgow. Mm. If you take away the first and last minutes, they were fantastic. Jamie George off the scale. Yeah, they were good, weren't they? It, it was a really shame it wasn't in a bigger setting. Mm. You know, the other three games were in real big yeah, sport yeah, sure, arenas, yeah. and 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 I agree. Saracens on the pitch were right. I mean, I think it's funny this morning. Jamie George says, "Oh, we're near, no, we're nowhere near the best that we can be." We're pretty damn good. I think he's put that England hooker debate to bed for good. Yeah, well, mm. and, and you know, and they they do that job on Glasgow without without their, their fly half, without Owen Farrell, with without um, Alex Good stepping in to that role, without Mara, um, Mako, without Mako too. Yeah, um, and they Mike, were, they Michael were Rhodes suspended. Yeah, Michael Rhodes. I mean, their squad is just stellar. And also, they we we didn't get the news about um, Owen Farrell until about an hour before kickoff. Now, they'd obviously had contingency plans because if you've got a bloke like Alex Good, who mm. is, he does what he says on the tin, he's good. Um, and you know he can play 10. So obviously they, they had it up their sleeves, but uh, wow, they were, they were, they play, were fantastic. He's been playing there the last few weeks, hasn't he? I mean, he yeah, has been it. there 10 for a while now. So the, the transition was pretty seamless. I mean, yeah, he didn't run there all week, but he's been playing there every yeah. week. Yeah, well, he, he was going to be there 10, 10 years ago. Yeah, because they yeah. didn't know that Farrell yeah. was going to come through so quickly. And he, uh, Mark's bored of the debate, and and we've all this is Alex Good debate part number four thousand and twenty three. Mm. But Stephen Jones, who was at the game on on Saturday, he, you know, he mentioned it. He wrote about it. Here's a guy who can play fullback, can step in and play fly half at pretty short notice, um, and run the team as he did. When you're looking for a World Cup squad and players exactly, yeah. outside of a twenty three with versatility, he 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 would fit the bill almost perfectly to everyone apart from the man who actually picks the squad yeah no, Jones for once is absolutely bang on there <laughs> which Jones <laughs> oh Stephen oh, right yeah. um, no, sorry not Eddie no. I, I, I'm I'm not sure that he won't take him I know that it would go against everything of the last however many years but picking a World Cup squad is slightly different to picking a, a, a Six Nations or, a, or an Autumn International squad and he is playing really well he has been playing very very well he's not making mistakes he's so versatile and that can be a boon and a curse Elliot Daly springs well, to mind ask Oscar Healy yeah but so I'm still not I wouldn't say he'll definitely not go I think he's more likely to go than Cipriani well this is, this is a slight tangent but I just wonder if Eddie has almost got his World Cup squad and he's not play, not been playing him so people like Wigglesworth maybe may have been told they yeah, don't. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, maybe. Well, I think he's God. only he's going to take two scrum halves. Well, the talking of that wasn't Ben Spencer terrific. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. His he was. There's no higher praise than say he was Wigglesworth esque in his box mm. kicking, and he adds a lot of other stuff too. Um, I know he's not as experienced. He played. I thought everyone's going about Jamie George, but I thought he was the yeah, absolute standout. I mean, good would be a. a a real left field pick, given he's been discarded by, by Jones. But and the reason is because he's not the fullback that that England want. You know, we, Mike Brown has now fallen down the pecking order because he doesn't attack in the way with the pace and and the playmaking skills that 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 um, Elliot Daly does. I, I don't think he's fallen that far down. He's playing really well. I mean, 
I had another game I watched, <laughs> which was a really pretty average game. The Worcester match. Yeah, but um, there were some good games in the Challenge Cup, mm-hmm. but uh, that wasn't one of them. Um, La Rochelle looked, by the way, brilliant. Um, I don't think Mike Brown is can start booking his holidays yet. I, I, he's playing very, very well. Um, I suppose it might come down to that. Good or, gosh, something's going circles, don't they? But for that final bit, Daly will go... Ford will go, Farrell will go. I just think your it's point probably about, one more. Your point about Good or Cipriani, I mean, I think Cipriani is is not in the picture. And actually, England don't have a third fly-off. Henry Slade would, would step in. Mm. He now very firmly sees himself as a as an outside centre. If you wanted a versatile player who could step in and cover 10 at a World Cup, Good could do that. I just... I'm not sure he'll, he'll take him. I well, think if he take well, five, about three players, he doesn't fit it. Well, also, also remember that World Cups... It's not like, as Mark said, it's not like picking a Six Nations squad no, where, you can have, where you can have 37. You, you can only have 31 in World Cup. Well, where do you stand on... I mean, Farrell didn't play. Um, it was due to be his first appearance since the Six Nations. Mm. In, the, in the fortnight in between, there was a lot of debate about um, whether he's the right man to captain England. Paul Grayson, uh, another friend of the pod, was saying that um, actually it's too much on the shoulders of a fly half. Mm to be captain and fly off because you never get a second out of the game a chance to take half a step back and just assess what's needed take a breather what do you think? I know what Grace is saying because you only got to look at um, this is when you smile when I do this isn't it you've only got to look at the data <laughs> <laughs> but here's a, here's a real sort of real stat out since the end of the second world war to 1947 when the international rugby started up again if you take the eight foundation unions, because Argentina and Italy come on a bit later, so they've been playing for, you know, 75 years. Only one country has been captained from fly half on more than 10 occasions. Somebody, a fly half's got captained their country 10 times. Only one country's ever done it. Now, I don't think that's a coincidence. It's Australia, by the way, it's Michael Liner and Mark Eller. They've got two. Nobody else has got a single fly half who's done it ten times. A couple of games here, a couple of games there, mm. but nobody. Phil Bennett? Lions hardly ever captained Wales. And that Lions captaincy in 77 was, I think he would admit himself, not his finest hour. Yeah. Um, there's something about that position that makes it really hard, and I think it's what Grace was alluding to, to be a skipper as well. You think of all the wonderful tens in from those countries over a long, long time, from Dan Carter to Barry John to, I don't know, Cliff Morgan to Jack Kyle and Ollie Campbell, etc., etc., etc. Hardly any of them skippered their national team for any length of time. That's a pretty good data set. And, <laughs> and Owen Farrell's the, the only... He's got... You know, he's... Been captain now, I think, 12 times, but not mm-hmm. from fly half. And I think it's made more difficult for him. Look, he's in my team. He's the best fly half. He's, he's the best player. He's a leader. He'll lead whether he's captain or water boy. It doesn't... He's just a leader. But he hasn't got a talker at 12 either at the minute. Which is what he's got at, at uh, Saracens. Yeah. And, and I think that makes it even more difficult. It's probably too late in the day. But I wonder if they might swap... Slade and Tulagi around and put a communicator at 12 and sort of mix and match almost not quite the Ford Farrell combo because I think you've got to keep Farrell at 10 but actually it just balances it out a bit I don't know Is it in his nature to 
to share those decisions. It strikes me that he, when he was at 12, one of the complicating factors was he wanted to be making those decisions and not the 10. I don't know, not close enough to make that judgment, to be honest, Alex. I, I don't know. You, you've got to be much closer to the team to, to, to know that. Um, I just think it's really interesting that there's, there's a lot of strong evidence that says that's a, the, the most difficult place to captain a team from. Hmm. Yeah, I, I bow to the data. Well, that makes a change. <laughs> <laughs> we mentioned the, the rock and roll game in, in, in Paris, but one of the, the huge debates that's come out of that game is, is around the red card for, um, for Zach Holmes, the Toulouse fly half. Um, does anyone have any thoughts on whether it should or shouldn't have been a red? Um, I've sort of got a foot in both camps in this one. Um, I'm glad you're not referee then. Well, yeah. How did you make a decision? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, all right, I'll say it shouldn't, shouldn't have been a red. Um, you've got a short guy ducking into somebody and end the chat. I mean, what are we going to do? If we, we're all sort of put a team of um, blokes who are all five foot tall out, maybe we'd get away with it. Yeah, I'm on the other side. I think it's a red. And, and really unlucky. And Luke Pierce. Tried really hard. He ref. He ref the. Yeah, he, he had a good. Really no, well. very. Yeah. Fair. I thought the refereeing this weekend was terrific. By the way, all right across, um, and then real pressure games as well. Uh, he tried really hard not to give a red, didn't he? He was. Yeah. He was looking for somebody to give him a reason not to. And the way the laws are, there wasn't any. And we're going to get this, and, and we need to sort of get used to it. Mm-hmm. That if we are going to take out those types of tackles, even on the margin. There's going to be some times when that oh, that looks harsh and it sort of goes against your rugby sensibilities, but there's a bigger picture here. Even in a game as big as that, and fair play to Toulouse, they won. So I suppose best of all worlds, maybe. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I, I get the you know sensibilities around head injuries and things like that. Um, this could happen in the World Cup final. Well, it happened in a semi. It happened in a semi with, with Sam, Sam yeah. Waterburn. Yeah. Waterburn? <laughs> it's, it's, it's his brother. <laughs> well, I spent um, a few days last, last week, was it, uh, in Paris at the World Rugby mm. Symposium where a lot of these things were discussed. And there, uh, at the end of it, I spoke to Brett Gosford, Chief Executive, and said, listen, are you prepared that your World Cup is going to have an incident like the Sam Warburton one? You know, it's going to be remembered for a decision could scar a game, could affect the ultimate champions. And and his answer and World Rugby's answer was absolutely yes. Mm-hmm. We have to be prepared to back the decisions and back the, the avenue we want to take this game. And they're not ready to announce it yet, but World Rugby are, are formulating a, a framework for these decisions. Um, and they're going to re- end up removing... A lot, a lot of the debate I've seen since, since that game uh, in Paris is about intent. Was it reckless? Was it Was it deliberate? Was it accidental? Those those three words, which are part of the conversation at the moment, are going to be removed from any decision that the referee has to take. And they're not changing the law, not changing the interpretation of it, but they're creating a almost like a flowchart, um, and, and it's, it's still a work in progress. But by the time we get to the World Cup, it's going to be a yes-no checklist. So it's, it'll be based on fact. So if you take the, the Holmes one, was it a high tackle? Yes. Yes. Was it dangerous? Yes. Yes. And then, and only then do you come into do you come into some mitigating factors right, where, so, so, where, where you take the blame out. Now, my view on this, and, and by the way, that, that's no different to, to what it is now. It's just trying to your point of we're going to have to get used to this. Try and understand the message that if if Zach Holmes had started his tackle below the ball, there'd have been no issue. 
he started it too high yeah. and, and opened up this area of risk. You could hear Luke Pierce going through that checklist, yeah. couldn't you? If you listen to the yeah, audio, yeah. you know, it was a shoulder, yes. It was to the neck, yes. I mean, arm to the neck, he might have got away with it, possibly. The d- slight duck, and it was a mm. very, very... He was looking like hell. If he, is he falling into this? And he he took the view that... He wasn't really. He's, he, oh, my view, he wasn't ducking. He wasn't. A, he wasn't slipping into the challenge. No. He braced himself he for contact, which yeah, every yeah. single ball carrier yeah. does. That that to me didn't quantify a dip into contact. I couldn't see any reason why. I mean, I, I am absolutely sure that it wasn't an intentional tackle. No. But that doesn't matter doesn't matter anymore. If you want to remove those collisions, and this one happened to injure the ball carrier, a lot of those collisions injure the ta- injure the tackler. Because he puts his head yeah. in the same airspace as, as the ball carrier's head, um, and it is the way. If we accept that we're trying to remove high tackles, as you say, well, I think we have to accept that while we get to that point, as we as Sam Warburton was a victim of the process of trying to remove tip tackles. I remember Elliot Daly was sent off against Argentina mm. the first couple of minutes. Mm. Did he mean it? No. Did he tip him in the air? Yes. How often do we see that now? Hardly it's gone. ever. It's virtually gone. Yeah. And I don't think we will get rid of full ta- uh, of high tackles because the nature of the, of the sport is so quick and, and, and people do duck into things and all yeah. the rest of it. I think we've just got to get used to the fact there will be more reds. It's going to be calm. I don't think this will be like the tip tackle. I don't think we will just get rid of it. I think the nature of the game will mean they're always there. There will be fewer of them. Yeah. But when they happen, we will get used to it being a red card. The conclusion of the Champions Mm. quarterfinals was two pretty tasty semis Saracens Munster at the Rico and, and Leinster Toulouse um, in Leinster's home ground I've just got a question for Mark here because he knows mm. all about putting on games and big occasions mm. why do Saracens have to play at r- the Rico um, I haven't looked at the regulations for the Heineken recently but it'll be something along the lines of a minimum capacity for the semi that Allianz Park don't get doesn't get anywhere near because I've, I've had a and then with... it has to be in the country of the home team right so why don't Leinster play at Toman Park because they seem to play all their knockout games at the Aviva yeah I, I, that's a fair I, and I don't I can't answer that without knowing what the cut off is if it's 30,000 which it might well be then Thoman doesn't cut it right okay the uh, EPCR have been criticised for this for a couple of years they did actually put out uh, an update a few weeks ago in which they've now said they will consider the stadium owned or controlled by the one of the home teams if it passes the the regulation. So they've opened themselves up to, to picking the Aviva now because it's suitable rather than taking mm. it to Croke Park if they're allowed to or or any anywhere else oh, in, in Croke Ireland. Park would be fantastic. <laughs> well, we've all, we've is. been. I went to one. Wasn't two thousand and nine? The we've, semi. We've, we've had two yeah. England games there. Yeah, it was brilliant. I mean, it was it's just a fantastic sensation. Away from Europe, one of the um, one of the big stories of the weekend is that as we speak this morning, Monday morning, um, Mike Ford is starting work at Leicester Tigers. He could have been joined by Sean Edwards. Uh, Leicester were, were keen to bring both experienced coaches in to give Jordan Murphy, the inexperienced head coach, some senior experience to try and ensure that Leicester um, can get out of trouble. They have five points off the bottom with five games remaining 
The WIU blocked their approach to bringing Sean Edwards on a short-term deal, so he's staying with Wales till the World Cup, although my understanding is that Leicester have now joined the list of, of, of potential employers for Sean Edwards. Yeah, after jo- the join the queue. Yeah, yeah. Wasps yeah. are keen. Wigan are obviously still keen, don't, um, although they never actually signed him to a contract, and the WIU are keen to keep him. But Mike Ford does start. He uh, begins to work today with George Ford uh, and Joe Ford, and Joe. And two boys who are there. Um, mm. How do we see that going? I feel a bit sorry for Jordan Murphy. He's been pitched into this sort of cataclysmic nightmare. Leicester won't go down. Let's get that right. And Mike Ford will probably get all the glory for keeping <laughs> him up. <laughs> um, the second thing is, I think it was a bit short-sighted, a bit small-minded of the WIU not to let Sean Edwards go there as well. Because um, he's, he's got nothing to do for a few weeks. And the RFU should just get their checkbook out and sign him up now. I don't care how much he costs. I haven't actually looked at Leicester's running. I don't think they'll go down, no, but it does happen about once every 10 to 15 years, he says. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That you get about 37, 38, 39 points, and you think, well, that's, you know, it's like in football, 40 points and you're safe, and then every, you know, once in a blue moon, it isn't. And this looks like it's going to be one of those years. Newcastle played Bristol. In game twenty-two, they've got Leicester in whenever it is game. Well, yeah, eighteen, nineteen, something like that. Leicester have have Exeter at home, followed by Newcastle away, mm. Bristol at home, Ooh. and then Quinns and Bath on the last two weekends. So it's it's in their hands if they. Well, it's in everybody, games. but it's in everybody's hands, isn't it? Nobody is so far away that mm. um, you know if they win two or three games, um, then they will will be okay. Mark, Mark, you've you've run a club, coached a club. Mm. Do you, from the outside, sense something is just rotten at Leicester from the top? You mean they've got got some good players? They haven't got any back five forwards, but they've got they've got some they've got a rock star backline who unfortunately don't get any ball. But is something going wrong upstairs? We make assumptions, and we we're looking, and that's part that you you guys' job. I understand that to, to speculate and put forward theories and all the rest of it at the end of the day unless you're in it you really don't know um they have got on paper <laughs> the back line in particular is look, i mean just ben young's george ford matt tamua to a laggy johnny may johnny may i mean goodness me it's an international back line Yes, I accept that they're not quite as strong in the back five of the scrum, but that does not look like the twelfth worst mm. side in England, does it? But mm. but you can get into a a sort of downward spiral, and at the moment it, it'll probably only take one game to kick them out of it. Can't see that game being against Exeter, mind. So that Newcastle Leicester game starts to look very very important indeed bringing in a coach at this late stage um it, it, it's a change it's a new voice i mean he's watched him a lot because you, whenever the telly's there you see him mm. watching his, his lad it's quite understandably i think it sort of it gives everybody a chance to sort of start a new chapter i think that's really the argument and in that sense yeah probably not a bad call um but so and he's not like he's starting from no prior knowledge at all, which is, you know, with five games to do and the first games on Saturday, you've got to have a pretty good idea of what you're going into. And and I, I assume he's got a 
you know, George will be a big, big noise in the dressing room anyway. Yeah, yeah. You, you would imagine. And again, I don't know the fella, but but you would you would imagine. And uh, he's the playmaker. He's the decision maker. So um, it's it's really fascinating. Um, Sean Edwards thing into England. Mm. It's head coach. It's the head coach's call. You've got to let the head coach put their own team together. Otherwise, it trust me, it really doesn't work. Well, Alex and I sat through a RFU briefing <laughs> on ch- last Tuesday. Yeah, well, look, you've got to. Which, sometimes you've got to take one for the team, haven't you? Really? <laughs> oh and God. believe me, we took one for the team and our readers. It was an absolute mare, and we came out, didn't we, Alex? With more questions and answers, as the song says. You boys love a bit of certainty, don't you? I mean, does it? Does it? Honestly, I remember sitting in, in this, not this studio, but one downstairs, the, 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 um, just before the Autumn Internationals, and, and, and it was all England's woes, and we've lost so many in the row, and blah, blah, blah. And I, I did make the point then, you've only got to win two or three in the Autumn, and, and the whole conversation changes. And I honestly, maybe because you know, I've lived a fair bit of time on the other side of the line, I don't understand, well, I don't I do understand, but I don't agree with this somehow you've got to be you've got to know exactly what's happening after the World Cup and you know what's the story it's all a bit confusing I know I know you've got to ask the questions but really can we just not concentrate on the World Cup well well there is there is some of that but also a lot of uh, big dog coaches will have had their contracts sorted out yeah I'd be really relaxed about that because there are any number of there's a supply of any number of very, very good coaches, those who've already done it and those who haven't. And you never there's not many coaches in world rugby who have offered the job of England coach. Even working at Twickenham. Are gonna go and say, Yeah, you know what, I think I'll I think I'll pass. <laughs> the, the issue though, Mark, is is it not that while other teams are sorting out a succession plan, mm-hmm. Ireland and and Wales, England I've got they're trying to run two different alternative plans here without appointing anybody. So that if if England fail at the World Cup, Eddie Jones will go, and by that we, we take it to mean they don't make the semi-finals. Eddie will leave. If England is successful, he, will he of his own volition? His, his con, yeah, there's a break clause. There's in his a contract. performance thing in his contract. So the, okay. the, the understanding is, if England fail to reach the semi-finals, he'll mm-hmm. go. The understanding also is, if England succeed, he may well also go mm-hmm. because. Why would he stay to mentor the next head coach? Um, and then the third scenario, which is actually the one that, that the RFU have signed up to and are, and are trying to, to push the narrative on, is that he remains in post for two years beyond the World Cup, for which he signed a contract, and brings through the next coach who takes over really running the team in Japan 2020. Now, that none of the, those different scenarios all require a different type of coach to be employed. Um, and that's where... If not certainty, we could do with some clarity, because I, I it just feels to, to all of us who sat through mm. that briefing like they're trying to they're trying to answer two different questions, and it would it would mean either hiring a Warren Gatland to take over immediately, or it would mean promoting Dean Ryan or Jim Malinder or or even John Mitchell to then to assume the role over the, the period of eighteen months. Well, you can add about seven or eight to that list. So, I mean, my point is this. It's all very well to say, in an ideal world, this is what we do. But actually, that's not how it ever operates. You Mm. operate within certain constraints that change over time. And at the moment, the guys 
who are charged with making those calls are operating within a contractual arrangement that they may not have been a party to. So you've just got to manage your way through it. Would you have faith in the RFU getting this right, given if you look at their recruitment track record over 20 years, do you think they'd be good or... They'd be likely to get it right or less likely to get it right? Um, until... Unless I knew who was making the decision, I don't think I'd answer that. Well, well, you don't know who's making the decision because the bloke who's supposed to make the decision hasn't got the job yet. Yeah, well, it's it's Nigel Melville leading a process that presumably will be signed off in the end by Bill Sweeney. Mm. Although in, in the course of one conversation, Nigel Melville went from saying, I'm not having any contact with Bill Sweeney, to saying, yes, we talk to him all the time, we're on exactly the same page on it. So... Uh, they, they can't even quite get their story straight either. I've got absolutely no faith at all in the RFU making the right decision. Um, the last time they made a good decision on this was when they didn't sack Clive Woodward after the 99 World Cup. Since then, it's been a succession of disasters. Yeah, let's, face it, let's face it, you know, Eddie is a great coach. The only reason they hired him is because Japan beats Africa. Mm. Mm, I'm not sure I'd agree with that. The interesting point about Sean Edwards and... I completely take your your point, Mark. That you, it's the head coach's job as to who he wants to bring on mm. board. It did emerge at this briefing last week that Steve Borthwick has been brought onto the RFU staff, so he's not on a contract like Neil Hatley and John Mitchell. He's now a staff member of the RFU, which implies that their investment in him is long term, and there will be a, there will be a role for him within the setup mm. within the RFU setup not necessarily mm. the England setup yeah, because no. that has to be the that has to be the call of, of the head coach so it is within the RFU's gift to bring Sean Edwards on board if they felt he could be of benefit to the union do you think they're going to offer him more than the Saxons job and about 20,000 <laughs> quid a year which I did a few years in well, 2009 that would be the ultimate if they gave him the Saxons job given that the Saxons don't have any well, games, any games yeah. <laughs> so as Adam mentioned one of the other big topics of discussion last week with Nigel Melville was was the future of the game. Mm. Mark, you've just written a book on it, presumably predicting exactly where we're going to go. Um, <laughs> there are three there are three different models on the table to run through very quickly. One is the World Rugby's Nations League, which I think we all know, annual championship, um, subsuming the Six Nations, the Rugby Championship, into one bigger competition that would have promotion and relegation every two years. The financial benefit for the unions, according to World Rugby, is about £10 million a year over the course of 12 years. Um, there are major issues with that. The RFU aren't... They're actually quite... They like the idea of it, but they feel that it's miles away from actually being implemented. Too many hurdles. The biggest of which is promotion and relegation. Um, their question is promotion and relegation into what? The second tier isn't strong enough yet. Um, the other, So the other two models, which, which would both benefit the Six Nations... Uh, hugely uh, financially one is a deal with IMG worth about 1.75 billion over again 10-12 years which would be a classic sports marketing uh, relationship which the IMG performed with the World Cup and I think with the IOC the Rugby World Cup uh, and the IOC in which Six Nations sell them their rights um, and then they share any any further uh, financial benefit beyond that and the third one is CVC, the private equity firm who have already bought 27% of the premiership, have offered to buy 30% of the Six Nations for about £500 million. One of the questions that we put to Melville was was what is the, the biggest danger to the Six Nations? A loss of control to a private equity firm who will 
obviously then share revenue, take a chunk of the revenue over time and sell it down the line. But also that 30% stake would allow them to direct the business in the direction that they want it to go. Or the identity of the championship, which they fear will get lost as part of a wider global league entity. Or do they just want to sell to IMG and then they get a massive cash boost and to hell with the rest of the world. Over to the former chief yeah. exec. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start with what all those deals have got in common, shall we? That's a good place to start. All these deals are about aggregation of broadcast rights. Mm. It, it's based on a, a probably well-founded um, belief that if you want to increase the amount of money you are receiving for your product, um, then selling them collectively will generate more money than selling the same properties individually. I mean, I was putting it really, really simply. They're all based on that. The reason why IMG and CBC and InSport and all the rest of it are are doing are, are putting those offers on the table because that they believe that that can be achieved. The big difference between some of the models is that the private equity model you're giving a, you are selling a percentage of your business forever, as I understand it. Uh, unless mm. I'd be very yep. surprised if it's was time limited. Yeah, for sure. I haven't seen. So that means you are effectively saying, well, we're going to bring this third party in and we think they're going to help us to grow the size of those rights better than we can do ourselves. And in, in, in exchange for that, we're prepared to give a share of the business in perpetuity to a third party. The more traditional sort of the MRG deal, the minimum revenue guarantee deal that IMG put is... No, give us your rights for 12 years. We will guarantee you X million billion. And at the end of the period, the rights go back to you. Why is all this happening? It's happening because of some of, of, of reasons that we mustn't lose sight of why this is happening at international level. Different to club level, but at international level, this is happening because of the differential earnings of Northern Hemisphere unions and Southern. This is really driven, whichever model you go, if for the world rugby model, certainly not the Six Nations models, that's more driven by Wales and Scotland. And for the same reasons as the world rugby model's been driven by New Zealand and Australia and South Africa, they can't hold, they're finding it increasingly difficult to hold on to their players um, because of the salaries that are paid in European leagues, particularly England and France, who have this extra revenue stream that the Celts and the Southern Hemisphere don't have, that club rugby generates these big deals too. And they can't really compete with that. So you've got to somehow find a way of giving those unions more money. That is the sort of heart of it, really. Whether you do it through a private equity deal or whether you do it through an, uh, a minimum revenue guarantee deal is, is, is an interesting debate. There are pros and cons on both sides. But that's what's driving it. I think the world rugby option at least gives a nod to trying to develop some new markets. Whereas Six Nations selling their own rights and, if you like, sort of saying, well, no, we're not. Yeah, we, it's too difficult. We, we're just going to do a deal on our own for the most valuable rugby proper set of rights in the world because it's every year. 
that is a significant difference. Mm. As an unashamed little Englander, <laughs> I, I oh, would no, say... No, 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 no. There we go, right? <laughs> I would say... Um, and we used to get on so well. <laughs> I would say, why did the Southern Hemisphere get their own houses in order? I mean, Ian Ritchie famously said, why don't you go and build a bigger stadium if you want more money, when he was chief executive. Yeah, which was one of the... He knew that was nonsense. Yeah, well, they can't fill the ones they've got at the moment. Well, it comes down to then, and if you want to really extend it, buy the book. But um, <laughs> it comes down to, very simply, to demography. You know, the size of your market. The, the biggest rugby market in the world is in France. About 24 million people in France see rugby union as their number one sport. The second biggest rugby union market is in England. And once you get outside those two, they're the, therefore the only two that can support a national league, there is enough interest in the sport in those two countries to have a, a league just based in those countries. No other country in the world can do that at a, at a, at a significant, can generate enough money not because people don't love rugby there, not because they're not well run or as well run. It's just simply a question of demographics. There's only 4 million people in New Zealand. In Australia, it's the fourth football code. Mm. In South Africa, there are now the white population. This gets very delicate, but the white population is the core market. I, I'm well aware of the Eastern Cape and other pockets where that's not true. And the white population of South Africa is now lower than it is in New Zealand. Scotland's got five million and football's dominant. Wales has got three. Ireland, you know, it, it goes on. It's nothing to do with competence or otherwise. It's to do with demography. And if you just let the market run, what will happen is inevitable. The biggest markets will come out on top. You've only got to look at football. Where do every single world-class player, wherever they're from, whether they're from the Ivory Coast or Argentina or, you know, Love Him Song or from, you know, Korea, they all play in four European leagues. That is what happens inevitably. It's only a question of time unless you intervene and regulate. One of the issues that the Six Nations have to take on board is, yes, their competition is the most valuable. Mm. But if the RFU and the SRU and WRU want to be able to charge £150, £200 a ticket in the autumn for the visit of the All Blacks and the Wallabies and South Africa, those teams have to be a, a decent, better yeah. than decent, attractive, oh, yeah. top-level teams. And as far as I can see, Adam, it comes down to a clash between trying to look after their own house versus how much are yeah. they prepared to sacrifice to help other unions to ensure that they still have decent fixtures to sell and that's every when November. You, and that's when you get into this horrible thing of governance, which mm. is, I know, people's eyes just climb. <laughs> they just, oh, yes, that's exactly... Yeah, we but we're, a, we're on the intellectual end of the podcast <laughs> rugby world, so we can do it. <laughs> the real thing that uh, they're having, England and France are having to wrestle with is, is what often happens when you're dominant in the market. Is it in our long-term interests to give up some revenue in the short run to, if you like, cross-subsidise some other countries so that the games we play against them are competitive and attractive and will generate larger broadcast and ticketing revenues going forward? Or is that not our remit? We should just look after the game in England and in France and Ireland and whatever. So and that might seem a really easy question to answer. It's made more complicated by fact that in those two countries, 
So it's, it's an argument for revenue sharing mm. to a degree. You know, Paul, how do you solve Pacific Islands? Well, you know, you could levy, you could put a small levy on every time they played away. That that would do it. There's enough crowds come to watch Fiji and Samoa. You could make a real difference. But England and France, the two big economic giants of the game, they have their leagues to worry about that they don't control. And that adds a degree of complexity into it. I can see both sides here. I can see why Australia and New Zealand are saying, come on, guys, we've got to do something here. We're just bleeding players and we're too small as economies to keep them here. And I see the England and France game say, look, you know, we're not in control of the leagues. That ship sailed back in the mid-90s, you know, and the clubs will pay what the clubs will pay. It's it's a really, really difficult circle to square. And all these things that are being discussed at the moment are, for better or worse, they are attempts either to not fix it, to improve it from a global perspective or from a Northern Hemisphere perspective, whether you get on the World Rugby model or you get on the Six Nations model. We've debated promotion and relegation a lot on, on this pod, <laughs> but there, there's an interesting parallel here. For, the RFU are very much against the idea of promotion and relegation in the Nations League yep. as it stands because they don't see there being a viable second tier. We reported in, in the Times last week that that the RFU Council insisted upon the introduction of promotion and relegation into the Tyrrells Premier 15 at their last mm. council meeting, um, which was seen as much as a, as a warning sign to the Premiership about what how the council would be likely to vote as it was to the benefit of the, of the Tyrrells. And, and I know there are some people in the Premiership who think that that decision will end up being reversed because it's not not beneficial for them. But there is, you know, we've got a promotion and relegation debate on, on the domestic front and international level, and, and it'd be interesting to see how the RFU deal with, with both of those elements. Yeah, I think, you look at the, the women's Tyrrell's results this weekend, mm. okay? Six, all 60s and 70s. 60s, no, not all, not all, but, but, but there's, a, there's a massive disparity between the top three or four or five, maybe, and the bottom mm. five. If anybody thinks that's the way to grow the women's league in rugby union in England they really ought to go and do a bit more research because that is a really, really bad model. Women's rugby has come a huge way in a very short space of time, like a lot of women's sports. Um, but there's still an awful long way to go. And international women's sport will go first and has gone first. That that that, Just like rugby. You know, what what got a mass audience first in male rugby internationals right world cups that's what attracts people first club um, sport is team sports are really really hard to to get to, to to work commercially and then after that you go to your second tier of club sport and we could have a huge debate now about the championship and what, what the hell do we do with that because that's not working either that's even more difficult we should, we should, in that context, then applaud Harlequins oh, this weekend. Record crowd for their game. I could be accused of huge bias here, but uh, <laughs> and I'm not. And I'm just saying, no, full disclosure, I am not involved in the club in any way, shape or form at the moment, other than the fan. Um, 
full credit, great effort. I mean, you know, though that is a, they really have got behind it um, in, in, in all kinds of ways. But a, again, anyone who thinks that suddenly club, women's sport at club level, even at, even in football, and you look at the, you look at the crowds in women's football Premier League, they are still really very modest. It's gonna take really quite a while and um people just need to be reasonable in, in about what about their expectations gents uh, thank you for joining us before we go our weekly feature god or goddess of the week adam you're up first absolute route one um complete god uh jamie jamie george, jamie george <laughs> <laughs> who played like a cross between Peter Wheeler and Gareth Edwards on Saturday. He was absolutely <laughs> magic and he's a great bloke to talk to and he always gives us a good quote. So cheers, Jamie. Yeah, he's a, he's a good lad, isn't he? Yeah. Um, I'm going to give it to a group of people. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say the referees in the Heineken. I thought for four real... Those are big pressure games. You know, I mean, three of them... Might as well have been internationals, and I don't. That's no disrespect to Saracens because I thought they were sensational. But the fact the, the whole theatre thing of 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 the Aviva and of Murrayfield and of, of of Racing, I just thought they're big, big games. I thought consistently excellent. You can go on about the odd, you know, the odd decision and that, but always I thought on overall they were terrific. Right, well, I'm going to casting vote in the speaker's chair. The referees have it. Oh, the referees have it. Oh, here we go. Jeremy Corbyn. Adam Hathaway. Yes, thank, uh, you. thank you, John. Gents, thank you. Uh, Stephen Jones should be with us next week if he ever gets off this train that he's stuck on. Mm. Um, and we look forward to talking to everyone again then. Thank you very much. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.